This morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, which is a little after, right? Gospels, Acts, Romans, right? We're getting right into 1 Corinthians. It's one of your longer New Testament letters. Written by the Apostle Paul in a big part of the beginning of this letter, which is uh, at least the second letter Paul wrote. If you read Corinthians, you're going to see he references other... Like like in in our previous interaction... And so there's other times Paul's interacted via letter with the Corinthians, but this is the one that the Lord has preserved for us. So we call it 1 Corinthians, uh, which is not what Paul called it, but it's what we call it. (laughs) Um, So 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at 10 through 17, because this idea of division is a theme that Paul carries in through the next several chapters of this letter, divisions within the church. This is what he says, I appeal to you, brothers, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who's Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say they were, you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, which is always a comfort for people who forget. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And wisdom was something that the Corinthians really wanted, powerful, cool uh, words that were really appealing and sounded neat. So as we get into this, pray with me as we launch in. Father, this is your morning. We are your people. So point us to what is true and strengthen our hearts that we might live more for your son through what we hear today. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I talked about Brooks Hatland last week, and so now I have another face up there, but it's a face of a guy you may not recognize. I don't know if any of you may have heard of him, or maybe you heard me mention him, but his name is uh, Thomas Oden. I don't know if you heard of Tom Oden, good old Tom. Uh, He died uh, three years ago, about three years ago, 2016. Thomas Oden has an interesting story because he was actually schooled in really heavy liberalism, right? So he had some of the big heavy hitters of like liberal thought contributing to his early education. And then through the work of a Jewish man of all people, encouraged him to root himself in like early Christian writings. I'm not talking actually about the New Testament epistles, but the early Christian writings of the apostolic fathers and people who were coming on the heels of this, this first wave of movement of church planning. And in reading these guys, he had an essentially a conversion experience because he saw how seriously they took the things they read, which would be here, right? So he saw the seriousness that people handled their faith and the way that they talked about their Lord. And it made him realize that he was probably a little off kilter in his approach to the scriptures, even though his energies for a long time academically were spent essentially saying the Bible's whatever, you can make up, you know, do whatever you want with it. And so he was kind of in that train, and as he saw people take it seriously, people dying for their faith, he thought, eh, maybe I should change. 
So he was a Methodist man, um, and he had a pretty cool ministry on the back end. The reason that you probably don't hear about Odin is because of his desire to be known for nothing. He was really big in um, uniting people and uniting churches. He, he wanted the emphasis of churches to be the things that all believers can hold to. His strongest desire was for the churches to agree. In fact, you might find his, he has kind of a three-part systematic theology, and it's kind of three volumes, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in them, he's trying to go through and just go, what are the things that all Christians have believed? And let's not focus on all the things that all Christians don't believe, which is what we love to focus on because it's more fun. So he had a ministry for decades of uniting after he had a life of just kind of making a name for himself and saying whatever he wanted. And he, uh, he became just a quiet, humble man who wrote and taught and pointed people to Jesus. He had a dream, or he longed for his epitaph to read like this. He made no new contribution to theology. No new contribution to theology. This is him telling a story about a dream that he had. In my dream, I was extremely pleased. For I realized as I was learning, for I realized I was learning what Irenaeus meant when he warned us not to invent new doctrine. This was a great discovery for me. All my education up to this point had taught me that I must be compulsively creative. If I was to be a good theologian, I had to go out and do something nobody else ever had done. The dream somehow said to me that this is not my responsibility, that my calling as a theologian could be fulfilled through obedience to apostolic tradition, the things that we hold to, right? So remember Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That was one of our memory verses, right? And so when he's talking about the apostolic tradition, he's talking about those things that have been handed down continually about what is true in our faith. And so Odin spent his life fighting to unify around the most significant parts of our faith. And that's why we don't think about him. That's why he's not like this guy on our radar, or he's on many people's radars, they're just not in our streams. Because many of our streams that we like are built on distinguishing yourself from other people. Oh, well, we're not like that, or we don't listen to people like that, or we don't talk like that, or we don't read books like that, or we don't do these kinds of things. Like, so I get the idea, right? We're Acts 29, we have things that mark us doctrinally. But very often, and you would probably believe this whether you're here this morning and you're a Christian or you are not a Christian, is that churches are often known for things they're against, not things they're for. That's a pretty commonly used phrase. Oh yeah, churches are always, you know, we always know what they don't like. We don't necessarily know what they do like. And we really don't know how they, you know, whether or not they get along. We might argue that we don't get along because we like to have <clears throat> lots of divisions among us. So in today's passage... <clears throat> Paul is talking about something that plagues the church. It seems to plague every church. Divisions. Divisions. The inability to agree and get along. And I think uh, Protestantism, in some ways, has just kind of allowed for that just to continue to multiply itself, even though we're all Protestants and proud of it, but just multiply itself through life. Because if we don't like something, we're like, well, I'm going to go start my own church. I'm going to go do my own thing. Like I'm going to go do this. Or I'm going to go do that. And so we just kind of have this idea of like going out and doing whatever. That doesn't mean we're not unified. 
But often there are some undertones of disunity that exist. Division, distinction, kind of going, I'm not like that. That's memorable. It's memorable. It's much easier to remember cool, distinct things than it is to be unified. Because unity feels boring. Getting along, like, where's the conflict? We need conflict in our lives. No story is good without conflict. I mean, what if you just watched a story and people were just glad to be together? I mean, a movie would not make any money. And so we feel like sometimes we have to drum up conflict and be mad about stuff and get seriously, you know, divisive. But actually, unity is both a mark of maturity, as, we'll, as 1 Corinthians will lay itself out as you walk through it, and it's also supernatural. Our tendency is to divide, not to unify, to distinguish ourselves, to be different, to not be like someone or something. And when you have a guy like Tom Oden show up, you go, that's different. You're, you're friends with different people. You're known for different things. Man, the Twitter mob, though, they can get mad at you. The social media you know, brigade that likes to tell you what's right and what's wrong and how you should and shouldn't live, they love to point out any, any little bit of thing that seems to be off. Wait a minute, why are you wearing that shirt? Why are you at that place? Why are you doing that thing? Why are you reading that book? I don't like to read. Like, whatever it might be. Always quick to try and slice something up. So as we get into the passage today, what we've already heard, these uh, 10 through 17 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to just break it out in three ways. There's a command that Paul gives, there's a reason that that command is necessary, and then there's kind of a reasoning, okay, a reasoning for that command. So he gives this command, he kind of says why the command is needed, and he gives a reasoning for the command. First command, I think we've already heard it, be unified. Be unified. That's what he says. I mean, you look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, listen to this, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just because it's a cool idea, not just because we think it would be fun, but by the name, with his authority, with his heart, identifying ourselves with him, I appeal to you that all of you agree. That you would agree together. I mean, it's, it's, this is going to be, I hope this is like one of the most boring sermons you ever hear. Because, like, we don't like to agree. That you would all agree that, you're, that you would be synced up. How? That there would be no divisions among you. That you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, we can always jump to, well, hold on, sometimes distinctions are good, right? We're certainly not Mormon, or we're not this, or we're not that. I agree, right? There are things that we are not. But you have to think Paul is writing to a church. <clears throat> that church loved certain things and tried to do things certain ways, and sin had crept in in other ways, and they were not sure how to handle it and what to do, and they had weird views of certain aspects of just Christian behavior. And Paul starts this whole letter, and it's going to be a long letter, right? Goes for a while, and he talks about it a lot, but he starts and spends his first energies by just going, I urge you to agree. Agree. You live in the church long enough. 
You exist in church life long enough, and you will be wounded one, two, three, four, five, six, fifteen times by people who cannot agree. By people who will say, I'm out, I'm done, I can't do this, I don't want to do this, I'm not like this, I'm not like that, I'm out. And, in fairness to the Corinthians, they had way fewer options than people in Spring, Texas do. I mean, you can, you can look unified and not really be, because you can kind of isolate yourself really in a really tiny sliver of church life and never have to deal with anything else. The Corinthians, sorry buddies, they're all stuck with one another. You know, like they have to figure out what to do. And so you have rich and poor, slave and free, often Gentile, some Jews mixed in there. You have all these people getting along, and they're going, get along. Not go do your own thing, go start a new thing, get along. So there's this command given. Well, the command comes on the heels of Paul learning something about church life that was going on in Corinth, right? So it starts, he gives kind of his, why I need to say this, what is the problem? Well, the problem is these people have divided, and he's going to give some specific reasons why. So verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, and I just have to stop right here, I feel bad for Chloe. Because, I mean, imagine these letters come and the church gathers together and they read them and then he, they get to this part. There's Chloe in her household. And like, you know, like, because now she has reported to Paul something. Paul then comes back and goes, Chloe has said, and you're like, wait a minute. Like, couldn't you have just said, I've heard, you know, like, there had been someone who said something. But Chloe must have been somebody within the life of the church who had significant influence. And the church was in such a condition that the ability to address it in-house had gone, you know, had become impossible. And so she goes to Paul. Paul had spent a year and a half in Corinth, if you're reading through us and at, with us in Acts. He spent a good amount of time in Corinth. And so he had a relationship there, though people were starting to doubt some of his authority, right? Like, you are who you are. So he has to be really delicate to be like, I'm not just going to like yell at you and tell you to do something. I'm going to try and reason with you why doing this thing is good. And so Chloe's there, and Chloe says, and I actually really appreciate this, because the person who's concerned is named. So often our concerns are like, well, I just want to kind of be anonymous. Well, no, like this is family stuff. So if you have a real concern, really bring it. And... You know, Chloe goes down forever. Like, when we meet her in heaven, we'll be like, hey, Chloe, I'm sorry that the only, like, sign you get in Scripture is the one who reported to Paul the divisions. But it leads to his arguing why this is wrong. So, the problem is there's division. There's a report about it in verse 11, and then in verse 12, he's going to explain it, right? There's quarreling among you. And this is what I mean. Each one of you, so everybody within the church... They start to name people, and this is a way we often divide. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Apollos was somebody who had taught and was known. I follow Cephas, Peter. And another says, I follow Christ. There's always the holy rollers who are like, oh no, we just listened to Jesus, right? Like, there's always those people who do that, and so they try to, like, they try to one-up you, but they're doing the exact same thing. So they're trying to Jesus-duke everybody, like, oh, we only do Jesus. Like, that's all we listen to. And so we look at verse 12, and we start to see the kinds of divisions that he's talking about. 
the divisions are not over the truths about Jesus that you and I believe. The divisions are over the people who talk about Jesus to us. They're not about just anything. These divisions are specifically about aligning with a certain apostle or a certain person or a certain teacher and essentially perhaps liking them more. Well, you know, I like the way Apollos teaches. I, would, I, I think that his style is better and I think that his teaching is clearer. You know, some other people are like, well, Paul's kind of the apostle to the Gentiles. I think we should... You know, I like him. Well, Peter's a good dude, too. And so everybody starts kind of aligning with somebody. And they can't get along because you have these people who like so-and-so, and these people who like so-and-so, and these people who like this person, and they all get together in the same room, and they're arguing with one another about the divisions that they've already formed, the people that they like more than another. And so it's not just like dividing up, even though we divide up over incredibly petty things. There's always jokes about you know, Coke machines, Coke or Pepsi, right? Like, well, you know, we just can't agree. Color of carpet, you know, I just couldn't do that. Or uh, music style, I can't do this, or whatever. But here they're dividing up over the people they will choose to follow. And all of these people, Paul, Apollos, Peter, all of these teachers are people who love the Lord. Okay, or like, he's not like, and some of you want to follow heretics, but get along, no, he's not saying that. He's talking about people who love the Lord and want these people to follow the Lord. No one trying to vie for an audience. No one trying to vie for what is uh, you know, their own authority, their own level of favoritism. It's people who love Jesus and want to see the Corinthian church strengthened. And yet they're dividing up around certain people. So we're, like kind of, we're the Paul camp, and we're the Peter camp, we're the Apollos camp, we're the Jesus camp. But isn't this the same way? Isn't this the same way that we do it today? Like we kind of check people out, right? You can go to Hans's uh, Twitter, whatever, profile that I barely post on, and you can see, who does Hans follow? And you can decide certain things about me and whether or not you want to hear what I have to say on a Sunday. That's why I make my jokes. Well, if I quote John Piper, you take me seriously. But if I don't, well, look out. I was talking with Patrick about that. And he's like, amen, man. I get it. So we do the exact same thing. We're like, well, I feel like the text is saying this, but I really can't feel that way until one of my validated pastors says this is, this is the thing. But it has to be, like, it can't be Andy Stanley because he has that unhitched thing. So if he says something true, it's going to be false because I don't like him. And it has to be John Piper because whatever he says is good. If he says something I don't like, then I'm going to assume he's right. We really do divide up in the same ways over the same things. The sermons that we listen to, the pastors we like, the books that we read, and the ones that we stay away from. We do the same kind of things. Oh my gosh, you haven't read that book yet? Like, what book? I don't know. There's so many books. I don't know them all. You know, people go to my house, and when you do a lot of school, you get a lot of books. And so they come to my house, have you read all these? I'm like, heck no. I haven't read all those. I own all those. Different. Different. But it's funny because we have this way of identifying certain people with good and other people with bad and then not get along with it. You know, oh, I couldn't agree with that, or I couldn't do this, or I couldn't do that. And it really does 
I think if you, if you get into the seat of like pastor, I don't mean that like, oh yeah, I'm awesome. But if you get into that seat, then you start to see, right? Like I know stuff about you guys that I wish I didn't. You know stuff about me that I wish you didn't. But you start to see the things that bug people and the ways that their heart is kind of guided in a certain direction or want to do a certain thing. And then you're longing for people just to get along. And your prayers that people would just get along become way more serious because you're like, I don't know how the Lord holds us together. Because we all divide up. We all say, well, I could, you know, if, you, if you follow this person or you say this or you quote this, then look out. As if that's the marker. People who love the Lord, well, these person, this person loves God a little differently, so I'm not cool with it. You sure you want to go to that country and teach and instruct, right? You're going to go to a Pentecostal group and you're going to talk to them about the Lord? Like, we don't agree, we don't agree on things. Yeah, we'll go. We'll go. And we'll talk about the Lord there. We'll engage hearts with the truths of Scripture because that's what we want to do. And that's what we want to focus on. And we want to let the Spirit do work there. And it's funny because when we start to do that, and Paul makes this argument in just a couple of chapters. He uses the argument about him and Apollos. And there's a thing that we ignore when we start to divide up over people, and we ignore that it is God who is the one who's doing the work regardless. Because Paul uses this line, Hey, I, I, I plant Apollos waters, but God does the growth. And Paul had a ministry that was often a seed-sowing, beginning ministry. Other people have ministries that are often kind of instructive and enduring ministries. They kind of stay with folks for a while. And what Paul's going is like, I'm a servant. Apollos is a servant. And, and if we miss it, God's the one doing the work. God's the one that is making all of this happen. It's not me. It's not Apollos. It's not Rock. It's not Johnny. It's not Acres. It's not your community group leader that's somehow magical and they get to sprinkle a little pixie dust over it and you grow and now you like that person. No, it is always the Lord. Who are we but people who by God's grace are used to see people strengthened more in God's grace? But it is funny. Because it's like, oh yeah, you know, when we talk about maybe the church that we are a part of or that we have been a part of, they go, oh, is that the place where so-and-so is the pastor? Oh, is that the place where so-and-so is the pastor? Is that the place where, you know, so-and-so is the teacher? Oh yeah, I go here, so-and-so is the teacher, right? Like, like, we still will kind of say in how we talk about it, oh yeah, well, I'm this guy, or I listen to this person, or we have this teaching, or we do things like that. And you can hear what Paul is saying in the background. We are just people used by God for a season. And that God is the one doing the growth. So if our focus isn't on God who does the growth, then what do we miss? We miss our ability to be unified together and whatever one person, be it Apollos, be it Paul, be it Peter, what those people can bring and how they can benefit people's growth in the Lord. So the command, be unified, the problem is the divisions, divisions specifically around people. So then Paul then jumps to his reasoning as to why this is so important. 
And in this, he actually diminishes himself and lifts up Jesus. Which is the same kind of thing you'd hear like a John the Baptist say, right? He must increase, I must decrease. The same kind of line. So this is what he does as you continue on in verses 13 through the end. Is Christ divided? This first question. Is Christ divided? Answer? No. No. Christ isn't divided. You don't follow Jesus' arm or Jesus' brain or Jesus' legs. Like, that's not how that works. No, Christ is one. He draws all people to himself, right? Not just some portion of himself. He draws everybody to himself. And so he builds together. Like we read in the letter to the Ephesians, he builds together his church, Jew and Gentile together. He does this work and makes one new person. So he goes, is Christ divided? Of course not. And then, he, in diminishing himself, he goes, was Paul crucified for you? You see what he's doing there? I'm not Jesus, folks. I can't do the things for you that Jesus did. I didn't do the work to make you right with God. All I did was talk about it. So was Paul crucified for you? No, right? So was Jesus divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That our baptism identifies us with the Lord. Not with the person baptizing us. But doesn't it feel a little cool if a cool dude baptizes you? Paul baptized me. Who baptized you? Some loser? So these are the things that we, we, that we like. Like, oh, well, yeah, I went to this conference and this person shook my hand. So what? I got like, but, you know, but, but it seems to matter for our human hearts in some way that we identify ourselves more with one over the other. So, so Paul goes... No, you weren't baptized into my name. You were identified with Jesus, not Paul. Father, Son, and Spirit. That's way more important than being identified with any single person. And so then he goes into a little baptism talk. And man, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you're baptized in my name. He names more people. I'm so glad the work of baptizing was done by other people so that there's just one less reason for you to want to identify yourselves with me than this parenthetical comment. I think I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone or whether I baptized anyone else or not. The forgetfulness of the apostle. But it's actually true. I think about that sometimes. Like, man, did I? Somebody be like, you baptized me. I'm like, I did? Cool, that's great. Like, because you forget. You do it for a while, and I, this is why child dedications are something that really stressed me out, just for all of you to know, next Mother's Day, but Johnny doesn't. It really stressed me out. It always stressed me out because you have all these people who come up, and they have their babies, and they have their family, and they have their cameras, and they have all their stuff, and they're like, and this is just one of like 50 I've done. And I get names wrong, and I get kids wrong, and I, I remember one time I was saying, you know, and so, you know, and now we moved on to this kid, and the family next to them gave me these big eyes because I had named their kid the wrong family. Started to, I just swapped names. Luckily, they were all friends and we could laugh about it, but that's the stuff. It's like these really significant moments become serious for people, and then the one doing it, like it's just another one. So that Paul, all Paul's doing is going, I, I think this is all, these are all the people I baptized. Beyond that, I'm not really sure. 
Not really sure, but his point is this. I'm glad that that was the case because none of you can then identify and go, oh, well, Paul baptized me and thus, follow the logic, and thus I'm more identified or you know, my baptism was more pure or it was better. All of those things remove what God is doing in the midst of people's hearts when you start to align yourself with a person. And then he gives his focus in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize. He didn't send me to baptize. He wasn't, hey, go and baptize everybody. He sent me to preach. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. He'll move into power in a moment in the following verses. Because the Corinthians liked power and they liked eloquence. Paul, in some of his letters, you know, it seems like he was maybe better in his letters than he was in person. You ever seen somebody like that? Where, like, when they write, like, man, your writing's beautiful. And then they talk to you, and you're like, you are really not as cool as I thought you were. I remember having a, a seminary professor like that where, man, when he taught, it was just like, I think Jesus is right next door. He's going to come right now. And so I was like, I got to hang with this dude. And I went to his office hours. And I was like, can I, can I pretend this never happened? Because... God was using him in a context of teaching that was incredibly powerful. So I thought, oh, you must always be that way. And I move into a different environment, and clearly you are being used by God. <laughs> like, because now this interaction is far different than I had anticipated it being. Paul knows what he was sent to do. I was sent to preach. And not in a way that had a lot of pizzazz lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now think about it. Think about our memory verse, because that's what comes next. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Churches, and I'm not saying just because there are multiple churches in spring that we are necessarily divided, but I am saying the inclination of the human heart is one that tries to divide. The way that the flesh operates is one that tries to divide. Being unified as a church, even if you're a church of two or a church of one, which isn't really a church, but we'll just pretend. Even if you're a tiny church, unity is difficult. You always know, have the, you know, the joke about the guy on a deserted island, and you know, there's like three buildings. What's that? That's my house. What's that? That's my church. What's that? That's the church I used to go to, right? One guy. because we always kind of move from one thing to the next. But it highlights something within us. That like, we just, we want to always ally ourselves with what's cool, or what's right, or what's hip, or who's eloquent, or who's not, and who's this, or who's powerful, and who's that, and you just go, that's not the Lord. The Lord uses weak people with a finite amount of skill that He gives to them to do things in the hearts of men, women, and children that only God can do. But in a culture that idolizes heroes and not Tom Odins, you always feel this enormous pressure to try and be cool, to try and be unique, to try and be distinct, different. Oh, well, Genesis is different because, I'm like, Genesis doesn't need to be different. Our difference needs to be that we love each other. Our difference needs to be that 
Some of you are crazy, and that's okay. Kidding. I said you, not us on purpose. That was a joke, guys. When people show up, and if this is your first Sunday, or your fifth Sunday, and you're trying to figure out who we are, like, and you go, man, it's kind of weird in there. It is. It is. I mean, we could, we could really, and this is hard, but in pastor life, if you could really go hard after, like, you know, wealthy, educated, or you go after one just, like, we only want white people here, or we're only going to go after this kind of race, or we're only going to go after here, or we're only going to go do that, or this kind of educational level, you can really grow something quickly, can't you? When you shoot for unity and you try to fight for that, it becomes much more odd because we become an odd bunch. And we try to fight for unity and fight for truth and stay together knowing that we're bizarre. And if you, you know, scratch the surface too much, imagine the Corinthians, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where, what was your background? You did what? Wow, okay, well, you're here. And so I hear from this for us the call as a people, as a local church, to pray for and fight for being together, for loving the Lord together, for recognizing, for recognizing that it is God and God's power alone that is doing the work, anyways. It is not us. It is no one minister, it is no one group leader, it is no one elder, it is no one deacon, it is no one member that somehow is just amazing. But it's God. And if we could actually have the mentality that we read in chapter 3, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. There's the Lord assigned to each. I planted. Apollos watered. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Anything. <clears throat> but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God is doing something. And he provides people at different times and different seasons to build us all up. And by God's grace, you can learn from my failures. And you can learn from your elder team's failures and their weaknesses and their struggles and the things that we are admittedly bad at. And the Lord can use by his grace the things that he has allowed for us to be somehow good at. But if we're aiming for some magical view of perfection, we will not find it. And so I'd say to the members here at Genesis, thanks for settling on us. Because that's really what you did. You settled. And we did it together. Because we know that the Lord is the one who does the work. It isn't us. It is no person, it is no minister, it is no leader who somehow has this a magic ability to make something unified because that is a work of God and only Him. And we'll hit bumps and struggles and frustrations along the way, but in it all we will proclaim Him as good and loving 
and he is the one who is building us up. For those who might struggle with dividing or division, and we all do that at times, I would encourage you just to make a habit of praying for your church. A simple habit, a daily habit of praying for your church. If you go, I don't know how to pray for my church. Well, like, I, make it up. Do things, I, I'm like, hey, day one, I'll pray for elders. Day two, I'll pray for, you know, the service. Day three, I'll pray for people to come. Day, whatever, you, however you want to do it. But if you keep your church on your heart, it becomes easier to keep it out of your mind. And that's where it starts to get sticky. And that's where it starts to get kind of frustrating. Because you just obsess over it. You stay in it. How come, how come, how come, how come, how come? But if you keep it here and bring it before the Lord, it's amazing how much more we focus upon Him together.